Hello, this is Michael Canfield, and thank you for joining us today on The Dog Watch. The Dog Watch is an evening shift of early or late duty, or the people who undertake it. This Dog Watch considers the natural world and the things that help us experience it, from dogs to watches and everything in between. Ultimately, it's a place for us to go wherever curiosity takes us. I am grateful for all the support we get from listeners here on the Dog Watch and wanted to give a particular thanks to Lori and Leaf. If you enjoy the show, please take a moment to write a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and to share it with a friend as it helps us get the word out about the podcast. Thanks also to Ben at the Stitchdown Podcast for organizing the Patina Thunderdome, which is a shoe and boot wearing patina event. The way it works is you start with a pair of shoes or boots that's new and then document how they patina or wear over six months. There are incredible prizes at the end. I've got a horse in the race, and so I'll certainly post my progress. Today on the Dog Watch, we are joined by Wyatt Gilmore, CEO of Grant Stone, a company devoted to making high-quality Goodyear Welt shoes and boots. Wyatt literally has shoes in his family. But early in his life, he tried his hand at becoming a motocross racer. After that had run its course, Wyatt began to work his way up through positions in the production of shoes and boots. He moved to China for what was supposed to be a short visit, but turned out to be many years. Wyatt eventually returned to the U.S. and helped found Grant Stone. In our conversation today, Wyatt tells us how to get a good fit in a pair of boots. The importance of width as an element in getting the proper shoe for your foot, and how a well-made boot can create a level of support, comfort, and durability that is unmatched by even the most cushiony options. We also have a chance to talk over the Grant Stone offerings and differences between the models. Ultimately, we have an opportunity to talk with Wyatt about what makes stylish and properly fitting footwear. So let's turn to the conversation with Wyatt Gilmore. Hello, Wyatt, and thanks for joining us today on the Dog Watch. Yeah, thank you, Michael. I'm glad to uh, glad you reached out and, and able to do this. Yeah, so it's late uh, late summer day today, and I'm assuming you're somewhere in uh, southwestern Michigan this morning. Um, I know from our conversations before that you've spent a good bit of your life in shoes, and you're now the CEO of Grant Stone, a, a company that makes premium Goodyear Welt uh, footwear. So tell us a little bit about where you are now and what you would choose to put on your feet uh, on a day like this. Yeah, so I am. I'm here in southwest Michigan. So this is kind of where I grew up. But uh, so the summers are usually pretty nice. Today's uh, e- even more. Uh, I mean, it's 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 an exception. It's it's cooler and. And uh, yeah, just perfect for the summertime. So um, honestly, I just wear penny loafers just about every single day. So uh, wearing wearing shell penny loafers today, and uh, they're even they work in the warehouse in the office, and yeah, no problem. So I assume those are Grant Stone penny loafers. Yes, they are. I, I mean, I'll wear some other brands too. Uh, so this is the uh, the Traveler loafer. So this is a uh, this is actually a new a product that we're going to be doing with. Horween, uh, Garnet, Shell Cordovan. So we do we do Shell Cordovan 
um, every few months we do pre-orders and then we'll stock some pairs if, if we can get enough of the shell. And so, yeah, this is kind of a newer one for us. And, uh, like I said, I'll, I'll wear some different products here and there, but usually I'm kind of wearing some of the samples and things like that. So end up, end up in ours most of the time. Right. Cool. One of the interesting things about your company is that it, you obviously have a small business that's based in Southwest Michigan and China and has a, an interesting sort of story of how you got into things. So I wanted to spend a little bit of time getting to know you a bit for listeners. And it seems like you've had a quite a long history in shoes and exposed it from a family side, et cetera. So I'm curious about your early experiences in shoes, your early memories of shoes and where they fit in and, and kind of how that led you to um, go into shoes yourself. Sure. Yeah. Well, my grandfather, my dad's dad, he's uh, uh, Floyd Gilmore. He was not only just kind of growing up and having him as, as being one of those people who was around a lot. I was always excited to see them because we lived in the Midwest. They lived in Connecticut. And so he was kind of like the the member of the family that kind of would draw everyone together, you know, and and kind of have these holidays and, and everything else. And so since I was young, it was also kind of obvious as well. He had gotten my dad into the shoe business because my grandpa worked for Alden uh, for 60 some years um, in Massachusetts. And so he was the, the East Coast a salesman uh, for Alden. And he did the Midwest as well before my dad got started and then it eventually went to someone else. But so that was kind of how, how it originally started was my grandpa being involved with Alden. He, he had his own shoe store for a little while and that was initially how he got my dad involved. And so I was always kind of around it. And he was one of those people that, it, it, I mean, this was his life. Uh, Alden was his life and the shoes were kind of his life. He brought it home with him. Um, in a good sense, I guess I could go either way, but, uh, you know, the, so that was, we were always kind of around that. Um, and then, you know, since I was, my parents had me, they were a little bit older to begin with. So my dad, he was already like well into the business by the time I could, you know, remember, recall anything. So, um, kind of the same thing. He was just kind of always had samples around and he was on the road a lot traveling. He was doing the, uh, the Midwest territory for Alden. He was, he was selling for them. So, that was kind Wait, of so this life. is your your grandfather had the Midwest territory? Uh my my grandfather had the East Coast and the Midwest right. and eventually I think this was in the late seventies, early eighties, um, it went to my dad. Okay. So my dad started working with Alden and had the Midwest territory. And that that's why we're actually in Michigan. Right. That's uh, what he, I was wondering. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he was he was traveling out here, um, you know, going to stores in Chicago and Detroit and things like that and um ended up ended up moving out here after he, you know, had some customers in this area and, and spent time out here. Yeah. Well, I wanted to just point out um, on the Grantstone website, there's a journal um, section and there's a nice article on your grandfather as well, which is, uh, you know, something I think both for that one and other people, listeners should check out that journal because it has a lot of information and uh, good perspectives on Grantstone. So, so you ended up in your family, at least in the Midwest, partly because of shoes, right? Because your dad selling for Alden. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. And so then kind of what were your memories then of how shoes fit in for you personally? Like, did your dad bring shoes home? Like, when did you have your first pair of like actual shoes? Like, how did that, how did that take place? Yeah. I mean, I was kind of sidetracked with, you know, what I was doing at the time being a 
a, a young kid. <laughs> and so and motorcycle motorcycles, if I'm not ex- is right, that right? Yeah, so I was just <laughs> so I was just racing motocross, you know, yeah. basically at home practicing during the week and wow. traveling on the weekends and and so I, I was kind of um really just completely focused on that and didn't you know, do anything else but that uh, to the point where my parents let me get homeschooled when I was in ninth grade and, and I moved to Georgia and stuff. And, and so in my like later teenage years, um, I mean, I was, I was down in Georgia starting when I was 15 years old. So, and, um, sorry to interrupt, but is that because yeah. of the motocross stuff? Right. That was oh, wow. a training, a training facility in Georgia. So wow. I was kind of full into that. And so like during the later years where kids were in high school and, maybe where I would have been around the family a little more and, and seeing what he was doing. I was kind of, you know, just full on, uh, you know, racing and focus on that. So, wow. um, but my first kind of, honestly, it was much later. I mean, I was always around it because similar to my grandfather, my dad was the same way. Always bring, I mean, he had hundreds of samples right in his offices and in the house and, and just kind of, that was his life as well. He didn't exactly treat it as, as a job. It was just kind of, around the clock. And I mean, most of his longtime friends, um, and family friends, they were, they were through the business, you know, um, just, just meeting people and, and customers and things like that. So, um, I was always kind of like around it from a distance, you know, so it was yeah. always kind of part of our life, but it was never, um, I never really considered it to be even a career path until much later. Um, and I think that was really once the motocross thing was coming to an end, um, you know, I wasn't going to do it long-term professionally just because, you know, I, I wasn't going to cut it. And so it was like, you know, the next step of going to school or, or whatever that might be getting a job. Um, you know, that's kind of when the discussion happened of, well, you know, have you ever thought about, you know, getting in the footwear industry and, you know, not necessarily as a job for you to fill right now, but, you know, one thing you could do is, is go check out the factory and, and go meet this family over there and just kind of see what they're doing. Um, because he thought that would be interesting for me to work on the China side. Um, he thought that that was a, a better route or, or versus doing something else, you know? Um, and so, yeah, I went to a couple of shoot, well, I went to a shoe school, uh, here in Oregon, um, DW Frommer, he's a, a boot maker. Um, and that's more of like bespoke handmade boots. And he has a, a class, uh, maybe a month long class or something like that, that, kind of takes you through the process of making a last and actually making a pair of uh, Western boots, you know, from the ground up, you know, which is kind of like the pinnacle of, of, you know, foot, footwear making. Yeah. It's like totally bespoke, right? Like starts from scratch. Is that right? Like he starts and Correct, just yeah. does the whole, the whole thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so you did, you did that and went through that process. Yeah. Oh, uh-huh. Yep. And then also uh, our, our family friends over in, um, in Connecticut, they have a shoe store, the Shoe Mart, the Zapatkas. They sell uh, Aldens and, and other brands, but I mean, they're kind of known for um, their selection of Alden. And that was, a you know, one of my grandpa's best friends. And uh, so they let me hang out there for the summer and work alongside their, their guys on the on the floor because they still have people. You walk in the store and you're like, hey, I want a pair of indie boots or I don't know what I want, but I want something good. You're well, they have someone actually walk you through, show you the collection and, and fit you. And so I, I got to go through that process and learn just with, uh, with the guys there, um, on the floor for a few months that summer, uh, before heading over to China. 
Wow. And so then you decided to go to China and this company in China, did they, do they make boots and shoes for Alden or what, what was the company connection in China? Yeah. So the, so actually my, my dad's stint with Alden ended in the nineties. Um, and so he was no longer working with Alden anymore. Uh, and that's when he, he actually met, um, a family who was manufacturing in China. And so, he he moved away from Alden and started working with his family in the 90s and basically became the factory liaison for them, um, you know, in between customers in the factory. Okay. And so when really the the only connection to Alden that I had at that point was just that my grandpa sold Alden's, you know, I, see. Um, mm-hmm. I was not, you know, involved with the Alden business uh, and I never was. Um, it was just simply, you know, my grandpa's uh, connection and with his friends and, and the stores and his customers. I see. Um, so um, the going to the factory was more or less, Hey, you have the opportunity to check it out. You should do that. You know, you should go, go take a look at, you know, first of all, the main thing being the culture and, and go do something, go, go see something else and, and see what, you know, if you want to get in, involved in, in footwear, this is something you should see that type of thing. Um, and so no, this, this company, um, they make other, you know, American brands, uh, okay. but no, not, nothing like Alden, um, or actually in like the, it was more Western boot oriented. I see. Hmm. Yeah. And so you just decided, Hey, I'm going to go over there for a short time and check it out. And so you hopped on a plane and went to China. Yep. And, you know, got, <laughs> got awesome. to meet. Yeah. Yeah. And got, got to meet the family and, um, the person who's running the, the organization and the factories and yeah, it was just one of those strange scenarios where, I mean, that's usually not the case. Usually most expats, you know, they're it, especially now it's not very common for, uh, you know, an expat to work for a factory over there. Um, it's just, just almost unnecessary. And, and usually a lot of the brands they have, they have an office in Shenzhen or in Shanghai or something, and they can just have someone, from that office, go visit the factories or stay there for, for weeks at a time. But to have, you know, an expat to go stay over there or, or work for the factory, it's a little bit of a different, um, scenario that, that usually doesn't seem to be very common, but at the time it wasn't really so much about that. It was just, let's just go see it and, and see something new. And so, um, I was there for a few months and basically it turned into, Hey, well, if, if you want to, stick it out for a year or something and just kind of see what this could turn into, you know, we'd love to have you type thing. And kudos to them because I didn't speak Chinese and and he was just more or less kind of giving me an opportunity to, to try to make something out of it, you know, uh, when there really wasn't anything there at the time. Yeah. And so they're more or less just trying to like fit me into the program and well, I'm sure you can do something, you know? And, and so, yeah, I kind of went through the whole process of, just seeing how the the products are made is kind of starting from the, you know, the actual leather inventory room to cutting, to stitching, to, to bottoming um, all the way to finishing and went through that for, for a good year. I mean, long story short, it just turned into, I, I enjoyed being over there. I enjoyed the culture and, and kind of how things were progressing. And so I just, you know, I just stayed, you know, ended up staying there and, um, you know, until 2000 and, uh, 2018, I think we moved back. So, um, yeah, kind of back and forth for 10 years. Yeah. So 
I want to just ask you, I wondered in those, that first short period, months or, or maybe up to the year, do you remember what you were thinking or what, like what your perspective was? I could imagine it being a lot of different things. You know, when I've, I've heard you tell the story a little bit and I don't know, like, were you wondering what the heck you were doing? Were you like, this is amazing. I love this. I might imagine a range, but can you, can you remember kind of what your state was during that time? Like what your perspectives were? Yeah. I mean, it, you were it young, was a little right? bit of everything, like, but I mean, yeah, yeah, I was 19. So, but I mean, when, you know, I guess my, my dad, you know, had put it a certain way to me, especially, you know, when I was preparing to go over there that, yeah, I mean, just be open-minded and try to understand, um, something that you, you currently don't have any experience in just because, especially nowadays, there's a lot of, you know, you're, you're conditioned to kind of already have these thoughts that something's going to be a certain way, right. you know, that you feel you already have an idea of what this is going to be like. Um, and I quickly learned that I, I did not have any idea of what that would yeah. be because it was, it was all pretty, it was all kind of something unexpected um, every step of the way. And, it was a lot different than I guess what I, what I imagined it would be. So no, I mean, the biggest thing to me was, I mean, I, I was, I was very lucky because they basically treated me like family. And of course I was, um, it, you know, there's only a handful of people in the office that, that really spoke English fluently. And, and of course, most of the people did not. And so it was just kind of like a very different experience to kind of, slowly integrate into that, learn a little Chinese over time and, or just communicate with very little language all, um, at, at work and, and things. So it just, that, that whole process was, I mean, it, it was fun. It was different. Um, and ultimately, yeah, I mean, it, it was a great experience, you know? Yeah. And, and so then, you know, after that first year or six months or whatever, you decided to stay and it ended up being years. So what did you do over that time? Like, how did your role progress over that time? Cause then coming back here, then you sort of moved into, you know, doing a much more advanced, um, roles, right. And, and starting the company. So how did your roles develop while you were there? Yeah. So, so naturally just because most of the suppliers, um, regardless of the customer, uh, that we were making the footwear for the suppliers tended to be in, in Italy or, uh, in the U S um, UK. So it's pretty common. I mean, most of the emails were done in, in English and stuff. So that was a pretty easy fit to kind of get started with, with simply the sourcing and, you know, having this material being shipped over and, you know, kind of handling the, the sourcing side of things and then being on location, then you can sit there and, and be there for the receiving and, and, and understand the whole inspection process. And when there's problems, because there always is, kind of troubleshooting that and, and then going through the process with the suppliers and, and the customer, because now things are late and, and so on. So it kind of stemmed from that um, just because I could, you know, jump in right away with, uh, with language and, and be able to correspond with, with, um, with the different vendors um, into, you know, because we're on location, just get involved in production. And even though, I didn't have the language the first the first year or two, just pick it up and get involved and try to help try to help on the production side because now it's gonna be, you know, when there's problems and there always is, 
Now you have to relay that to the customer, vendors, and so on. And so it, that was kind of how it, it naturally kind of started and then allowed me to kind of get more and more involved um, from from there. Yeah. And then when you came back, et cetera, I think you did some buying and, and going out and, you know, seeing different shoes. It seems like obviously when you were in China, you saw a lot of different types of shoes. So I'm curious kind of what lessons you learned when you're out there interacting with shoes and I kind of want to get inside your head to be honest because you know you'll know you know more about shoes than I'll ever even come close to knowing and I'm curious at that point what you learned and now what you have as far as when you approach a shoe or boot like how you what the things that you notice the things you observe and how you evaluated then and evaluate now a shoe or a boot yeah I mean the the footwear industry is is very strange because it's it's all about the demand and what are people expecting or what do they want what do they want to spend their money on and you know not to go go too far into this but it's one of those things where it's very it can be similar to watches but and i always draw the parallel there but one of the main differences is that regardless of the culture or the nationality where you live the, the city for some reason, even though watches can be niched to a certain extent, it still resonates with most, uh, regardless of what what whether you're in Hong Kong. I mean, especially in Hong Kong, or whether you're in in Japan or China or or Mexico or U.S. Like people understand it to a certain level because it's it's just been it's it's so generic in, in a certain sense, and that everyone can kind of get behind it. There's something with footwear where it's just not, you know, if you read these style blogs, it's, it's, especially in the footwear industry, people kind of, you know, they'll be joking and frustrated in the same sense. It's the one piece of, you know, clothing that people will tend to overlook or spend the least amount on. For example, even someone who's really going out and spending on a suit or maybe even a casual field jacket and denim or something, they'll they'll buy a $70 pair of sneakers, you know? Um, and so, and, and definitely, you know, I've, I've learned that. I mean, and I would never say one way's right or wrong. That's just for some reason, footwear tends to be the area where generally speaking, people will spend the least amount, right? They'll allocate least amount of their budget. If, if they're, you know, going out on purpose to, to, buy something, hey, I need to buy this, this, and this. It seems like they allocate the least amount of, of budget towards towards footwear. And right. you know, the obvious answer is, well, sneakers are casual. Everyone can wear them, and they happen to be the least expensive. And so it just generally goes into that direction. Um, so I guess that's kind of to start. Um, so, yeah, I think just production in general, you know, if because, yeah, being, being American, it's not that common to be able to just kind of walk into a factory and kind of see how things work and all that stuff. So just kind of seeing that and realizing, yeah, there's an art to that as well. Right. That's, that's pretty, that was pretty interesting. So a couple of quick things. One, you mentioned, um, the question of spending money on shoes versus the rest of your outfit. Like, it seems like there's pretty good evidence that people notice shoes first or, or that's one of the main things they notice. Um, and and it has impact on if you're going for, um, 
you know, an, a, a look or whatever that I hadn't appreciated until I sort of started to understand it better. But but it turns out that shoes actually are one of the first things that uh, often people notice, um, as opposed to seeing the the full outfit or whatever. So that's a, a bit of an endorsement for what you're saying. And the second thing I wanted to just ask you quickly is, can you just describe what Goodyear Welt is for people who may not kind of understand that distinction? Yeah, sure. So Goodyear Welt, I mean, it was... It was I think it was Charles Goodyear who came up with this. Um, he was in the late 1800s. And it, it's simply the idea of being able to keep the booty, the top part of the boot or shoe intact, to re- but replace the outsole. And so in an effort to do that, on the bottom of your insole, inside your shoe, they attach a rib. He came up with the idea to attach a rib. That rib is then attached to a welt. And that welt is a circumference all the way. It's a little strip of leather that goes all the way around the shoe. Now, with that a welt attached, now you have the booty, which is like the upper, which is the upper leather, the lining, the insole. And now you have this welt attached to that booty. Now you just slap an outsole on the bottom and stitch the outsole to the welt. Right. And so it was basically just that process of using gemming and this rib to use an inseam stitch to attach a welt to put a bottom on. So you can wear the shoe for two, three years, remove the outsole, and then put another one on. And you can do that, you know, three, four times as long as the upper can kind of handle that. So it's, that's kind of the the process because it can get a little more detailed as far as the way that it's done. And now people will say, well, welted shoes is a little more generic because you can have hand welting, you know, versus using that, that gemming piece and using a machine stitch to attach it. But yeah, in, in for most markets uh, around the world, including the U S it's kind of cement versus Goodyear welt, you know, that that's kind of the, the two. Right. And you see that um, on the outside of the shoe. So if you were looking at a Goodyear welted shoe, you would see the welt stitched around the outside. That's kind of how you would know, right? Well, with the, that's true with the exception of cemented, shoes nowadays i mean the way that they make them it's very simple to have a welt attached to a shoe and then just slap an outsole on with cement and that's still cemented but you, the welt's not attached to the actual booty so you can't resole a product like that so honestly the only way to know um is probably to ask because you know someone who's really good at looking looking at it they could look at the sole stitch itself and see if it's a machine stitch or not because that welt, if the stitch on top looks perfect, immaculate, and it has almost like a, a sequence that's repeated all the way around, it's just a pre-stitch welt, right? So it's a, it's a faux welt with a faux stitch, and they just stitch just on the welt. It's not actually going through the outsole. I see. So that's another way you could look as you turn the, so- the shoe over, is that stitch going through the sole or not? Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it can be a little tricky, but I mean, brands will never really pull that over. Like as far as simply asking, Hey, is, is it Coach or Welt or not? Or on the website, um, it might look like it might have a welt on it, but you know, it, it, it'll say whether it's cemented or, or an actual Gucci right. welt. Cool. All right. I didn't actually know that that was the important distinction. So cool. So one quick question 
sort of to, to complete the history piece. So how did Grant Stone come to be? And then why the name Grant Stone? And, and how, how did you come up with a brand symbol? It was, it was about halfway through my um, time with a factory. I was working with the customer, um, the American customer, kind of line building and, and kind of being the in-between for the factory. And I mean, one common theme, right, is just being a manufacturer in general is is an absolute grind. And to me, the only person who, the only business or position that's almost has more pressure is is the vendor, like a tannery. Because the brand, I mean, when they get a product and there's this wrong and that's wrong, it, it goes back to the factory and then eventually back to the tannery. And it's just this, it's just this feeling, this business of how it works, where at the end of the day, the brand has all of the power um, to really just say, you know what, this is this is how we need it done, or you know what, we need this air freighted, or there's no. Well, I want to say there's partnerships and everything else between brands and factories because there absolutely is. Um, they still kind of have all the power, and really, I mean, you squeeze the, the brand squeezes the factory to the nth degree and, and, and so on and so on, because the factory has to do that to the tannery and the tannery ultimately, you know, they're the ones at the, at the very beginning supplying the materials. And it's just like this, it's a very, very tough relationship for the entire business. And it, it depends on price point and where you're at. And I'm, and I'm more referring to, to these bigger, um, corporations that make, you know, millions of pairs of shoes and things like that. But I mean, I've seen that dynamic and it's tough. I mean, but that, I mean, that's just business in general, I think manufacturing. Um, and that seems to be the majority of it. I mean, manufacturing is just a, it's just a very, very cutthroat difficult p- place to be at because um, it all falls on them. And when it doesn't, they, they push it to the supplier. Right. So that, that experience over the years combined with we w- we had this team to make better grade product using the likes of shell cordovan or french calf and finishing them in a certain manner using leather outsole shoes stuff that's usually only made in leon mexico you know in in the us north america in general in the uk um parts of italy although italy tends to lean towards blake and a little more refined footwear, not not these like um, more casual boots and and gutsier leathers like that North American market looks for. But people didn't, customers didn't exactly want that because either, I mean, the main reason being, well, how can we market it? You know, a, pro- a product at this price point out of China. If we're, thanks for the idea. We might take that to to Mexico or Arkansas you know, type of thing, <laughs> Yeah. you know, because then we can sell it, right. you know, we can say made in America or whatever made in Mexico or something. So that, that was, I mean, it was just a grind constantly from the factory's standpoint. That was what they always wanted me to do. Let's make better products because we're not going to compete in the volume. We're not, we're not a huge factory. Um, comparatively speaking, we're not going to be able to compete with our neighbor, you know, right over there in Dongguan. 
they're going to get the volume of business because we can't, I mean, we won't build a match of prices. It's not going to work. And so naturally we just went further and further in that direction. Even if it's for a single brand who works with multiple factories, we would take the product that was a little more intricate. That was a better material. The, you know, the, um, exotic materials. We do a lot of ostrich, things like that. So it just went further and further down that path, but it became very difficult to sell a line like that because they're like, well, I need something for $199. I need to retail. That's This is my sweet spot for price. Or you know what? Hey, I'll, I'll do this. You know, I'll do this one line for, and we'll, we'll sell it for $350. But you know, <clears throat> I need... I need another line at 159, you know, retail. And eventually we just couldn't do it. And we kind of made a, you know, conscious effort to avoid programs like that altogether and just try to focus on better grade, less volume. <clears throat> because once you go down that path, you can't really go back and, and they'll say, well, you know what, we'll, we'll give you this program at this price point we wouldn't be able to produce it right and at the at the price point they're looking for um this it's not the way the factory was set up eventually and so it became harder and harder over time to to find brands who could take on a small program <clears throat> at a certain price point so it was always kind of like a, a pipe dream like hey let's let's make our own brand let's do something here and over the years i mean i would just sample different things um we had the last you know we had experience to make the patterns and the fit. We had all of the connections to these suppliers, whether it's Horween or CFstead in England for, you know, Suede's or NNA in, in France for French calf. We, we had all these suppliers, but, you know, it, we just didn't, ha it was very difficult to sell the product, you know, to, to a brand. Um, and so, yeah, we just started making samples and eventually, said, Hey, let, let's just do it. Um, and, and ended up making our first round of shoes of 635 pair, which was a lot of shoes, but we wanted to make, make a, a full kind of line, uh, seven products. Okay. And those friends I was telling you about in Connecticut, this is a pack as a shoe mart. They offered to, to house them and, and ship them for us for, you know, they're like, well, you know, if we can help you for the short term, you know, to get you, uh, you know, off the ground and all that stuff. And so that was basically kind of how it started. And when was that? 2016. Okay. In the spring. Yeah. And where did the Grant Stone and name and symbol come from? How did you decide on that? Well, so the name Grant Stone, that was something that my dad had used in the past. Um, and it was someone that he looked up to. It was, it was an Alden salesman back in like the 50s and 60s. Um, and my grandfather basically was getting into the company and and they had a little overlap there when he had started um and my dad just always remembered him as being a, a really nice guy and he really enjoyed him you know and so and he loved the name and so that when it came around in 2016 you know he, he had mentioned the name grant stone and I, I, I thought it was a good idea you know i thought it, was, it sounded great and uh there's a story there and everything else and you know um and so the logo uh, is a little more random. It's just my mom. She she used to ride dressage and all that, and she loved horses. And so I kind of grew up around horses, and I just thought that that was a a unique design that 
yeah, I mean, it, there's no relation to the shoe side of things. It was just, uh, you know, I was like, how can I incorporate some type of like horse or horse head? And yeah. that's kind of what I came up with. Cool. Yeah. Well, both seem to have a, have a, a, a connection to your family though. Right. And, and right. coming out of the influences you had. So, okay. So, you know, that's kind of the, the background of this, the brand, et cetera. I wanted to turn a little bit to what you have right now, as far as what you offer and maybe starting with you know, the materials, right? The, the different leathers, right? I, I've heard and, and understand from you already learned things about, for example, Chrome Excel, Veg Tan, et cetera. So, and then you also have the exotic leather leathers, but when you approach the brand, right? When one comes to Grant Stone and says, Hey, let's see what they have. How would you advise someone to look at the different leathers, for example, and what those different leathers would do for you or, or how you would um, d- decide on a pair of shoes based on the leathers you offer? Well, I, I think you can, it, it almost comes from a perspective of where are they in like their footwear journey. Um, and, and similar to, to way someone might say, Hey, is this, is this your first watch or is it your fifth watch type thing? Um, because you know, there, there's a group that you can start here. If you're looking for your first one that can like do it all, or, you know, is it your fifth one, you want something a little more fun that you can wear, uh, you know, a little less often, or, you know, you just want something a little more unique. So, so where would you start? Like, where was the sort of intro then? So in general, because the way that our collections built out in between, cow, calf, kangaroo, ostrich leathers, um, being chrome tan and veg tan. It's, it's usually the first question is, you know, sure boot, but a lot of times it goes more towards the boot or I'm not sure. And it just goes towards chrome Excel. And the reason why is because we cover the core colors in chrome Excel. So your, your light tan, which is, we call it dune, natural chrome Excel, black, and the, the crimson, is Chrome Excel as well. And so it's kind of like your light tan to your brown and your black. And Chrome Excel, I mean, it's proven itself over time as being one of those heavier weight leathers that performs tremendously well for footwear. Mm-hmm. It's it's malleable. It's, it's elastic. It's very tough. You can wear it throughout the winters and salts and, and all that stuff and treat it just like any other leather and it, it's going to do just fine. Um, it can get wet and, and all that. So, and then for the people who, who get into it, they just love Chrome Excel simply because it has so much character. So it's called a hot stuffed leather. So it's tanned with a lot of wax and oil. So when the product's done, you can actually, you know, on the flesh side, if you push with your hand or like from the inside of the boot, if you push with your hand and put pressure on the leather, you can actually see the wax and oil moving inside of the leather just because, I mean, it's, it, it has all of that tanned into the hide itself. And so that keeps the leather supple, hydrated, and it's, it's think of the total opposite of like a boardy hard leather, right? That would be dry and begin to crack. So it, it's just, and that's all, you know, that's their tannage and, and every tannery has, um, multiple articles and, and different ways and variations, depending on what the, the usage is for. Um, but that's kind of where you start, you know, Chrome Excel boot. Um, and because it can kind of do anything, you know, it can be casual, 
um, maybe business casual and, and, you know, it can be used for a lot of different things. Yeah. And it has a distinctive wear too, right? Like when it, it gets the creases in it and that are really distinctive that, you know, people tend to like, but need to understand, right. That, that, that it creates a very unique look as well. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, one of the best ways to, uh, to think of that is, you know, sometimes you have like these big tote bags that are cut out of nice leather, these big panels of, uh, of leather. And just eventually it, it shows all the wear. Right. And I mean, if, if you're looking at like a, a big house name, fashion brand, you know, take, take Chanel, for example, I mean, those are calf leathers that are tanned in a way so they do not change over time. They do not want this product to age and look worn over time versus, let's say, the coach from the 80s and 70s, you know, that was using these vegetable tan leathers and tan colors that you you carry this bag and it brushes up against your, you know, your clothes and things like that. And it just darkens and turns like caramelize over time. Right. And gets this like dark, rich character um, where the fashion brands have kind of moved away from that vintage showing a lot of the character and wear of the material. They've kind of moved away towards cleaner. Um, and in the footwear side of things, I mean, it is personal preference, but, to, to someone who has seen it like a natural shell cordovan or they see these chrome excel leathers and they they wear in and they have all the the creases and the highs and lows from the leather uh from the from the wax and oil that it kind of looks alive right and it kind of shows the wear and i mean every single pair is different at that point right um where if you take a leather that you pretty much tan it and pigment it it almost looks dead i mean it's it's the only wear you're going to get out of it is 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 literally color transferring onto the surface of that leather or eventually it peeling or something like that which i wouldn't expect from you know a high-end fashion brand but just almost color transfer that's the only thing you get out of it which people don't they don't want that so right right so the chrome excel versions people could start with and and those will will both stand up really well and get a really unique patina over time and and that's a, a feature that is makes a really good look pair of boots look good um the veg tan is slightly different right and and where is that that would sort of be a next step um what how does that change over time if if someone was okay with the color having a lighter a lighter tan leather i would put that right there with chrome excel as far as an entry level you know it, easy boot to wear. You can get away with it doing just about anything and low maintenance. Um, if anything, just because this particular type of veg tan, it ages even quicker and has even more dramatic results. Um, and so, I mean, that's kind of one of our favorite leathers just because it's, it's pretty much the pinnacle of you, you want to see character and patina over time. You get a, a tan colored, vegetable tan leather, you know, and, and just watch it go. And you can pretty much wear this thing for years. And if you put shoe creams and stuff on over time, it's going to turn into this like dark tan, you know, caramelized leather. So it, it's, yeah, that would also be, you know, another, another one that's yeah. fairly simple to wear. Yeah. Right. So I want to, in a minute, I want to talk through a few of the actual specific models you have, but I also wanted to just say, 
you on your um, journal, et cetera, really focus on fit. And one of the things that you guys do is offer shoes not only in the D width, but also in E and triple E. So can you explain why this is and why people might think their shoe fits right now and, and may, you know, be in a D, but actually would be better in say an E or a triple E and, and why you've taken that very, I think would be an expensive or a major investment in your company to do that. That all kind of stemmed, stemmed from my family, just the orthopedic background, I mean, both my grandfather and, and my father had that background. It's just ingrained into what we do. Everything is always about fit. Um, specifically, the American market, lasts are made too narrow. And that's just, you know, that that is a that is an opinion, but it's also at this point pretty much just fact. Lasts are generally made narrower than the average foot can handle in the U.S. market, however people wear them. You know, it's like the, the Nike kill shot, very, very popular Nike casual shoe that came out. It's very attractive. You know, it's this elongated looking tennis shoe that's nice and narrow and everything else. The majority of people put their foot in there and it's not going to be exactly a comfortable fit, but people wear them. It's not, and they just wear them, you know, and that's, that's just kind of the footwear industry in general, right? And, and part of the reason is, or maybe the majority, it's very difficult to make a shoe look good while giving it enough room, you know, in the instep and the ball, you know, huh. if, if you make this wide looking shoe, it's not very attractive. And so it's not very easy to do. Generally speaking, it's difficult to find wide. I mean, to the point where, so like for my wife, you know, she likes to get like running shoes or casual sneaking, sneaker walking shoes. And I'm like, yeah, we, I mean, you need a wide width. I know now after the problem she's had with certain shoes and everything, it's like, well, you just need a wide width. She never even heard of that. Right. Right. And so it's like, we find New Balance, even New Balance, who's usually the best at this. I mean, I could only find a handful of styles that even offer a wide width, but we get a pair and she's like, this is the greatest thing ever. Like, you know, try to get a Nike half size up or something. She doesn't like it. You know, just, it it feels too long, like whatever. So I think that just kind of been ingrained in our um, business over the years. We just kind of understand that the majority of the market, I mean, and even what we do, right. These aren't bespoke. This is, this is a last that's made and trying to fit the general public. And so you can only fit a percentage of people depending on the way your, your last is cut. And so it, you're trying to just fit the majority. That's what you're trying to do. And so to start our last, even our D wits, which is medium, they're already fuller than the average because one thing in Goodyear, well, they don't stretch. You can't blow them out as easy as you can, you know, a Nike golf shoe. Right. So you, people can get away with it a little bit. I mean, and I'm sure you've seen it where people wearing a sneaker and like the sides are pushing over, like hanging over on the side. That's, you can do that with Goodyear Well, but it'll be miserable. It's not comfortable and, you know, just not, not ideal. And so it's trying to put that shoe on, put the boot on and, and not have any pressure. You just don't want pressure. That's all. But honestly, it's, it's pretty hard for people to do. And generally speaking, I mean, just doing, you know, being part of the customer service and then doing it for four years out of the seven, it's the heavy majority. Hey, I've, I've got this shoe, this shoe, that shoe. And I'm like, well, what's your size? And now we've learned to ask, well, yeah, but do those fit? <laughs> you know, and they come back with a very long email, like, well, actually, uh, I've got that size, but it doesn't, it actually hurts pretty bad. It's like, well, I'm glad we didn't base it off that size. You know, like it's, it's very, very common for people to say, I tried that one and it's too long. 
So I went to this size. I went to half size down. It's a little tight, but I'll break it in. That is the heavy majority. And so just, and we, you know, you go into it knowing that, and I'll give you a perfect example, um, a a pre-order that we recently did. So people can choose the product and then they choose whatever size they want and we make it, you know, um, made to order. We had nearly just as many E wide widths as we did D widths purchased oh, wow. like in a nine E versus a 90, which for a bigger retailer, that would be, you know, virtually impossible just because people don't even know what an E width is. But once people kind of realize they have the option and they try something, I mean, they, they don't go, they'll never go back to, to a narrower shoe unless, unless they can kind of size up and get away with a little extra length. But you could be compromising there as well, depending on, you know, your, your heel to ball length. So that's kind of where it stems from. And and like you said, yeah, it's, it's definitely not something that we have to take lightly because as a business decision, it's, it's a lot to take on because your inventory becomes very, very complicated very quickly. Um, We came out with a new boot this last week in a new leather and it's a bison, it's a bison leather. And to release that, it's 42 sizes that we're stocking. <laughs> oh my God. Wow. D E triple E six through six D through 13 triple E and half sizes. So, you know, every product that we're taking in three widths six, is 42 sizes. And so from an inventory standpoint, it gets almost ridiculous, you know, to the point where, you know, and I've had that experience with the retailers, you know, through, through my family, I mean, they've slowly moved away from wits because it's simply a business decision that I can't, I can only carry so many variants. I can only carry so many SKU and more people buy a 10 D than they do a 10 triple E. So I'm going to cut the 10 triple E. Um, and so we've, we're just trying to position ourselves to, we want to make up that difference, but still we have our limitations as well, where someone says, well, Hey, do you, do you have a, a B or a C width. And we're like, yeah, sorry, yeah. not yet. You know, that'll get us into the 60, 70 sizes per style, Right. you know? And, and so it, it's kind of, it's just one of those things where we're going down this path, but I, I think it's another way for us to, to kind of have this little niche of, of the sizing right. and you, you, a customer finds the last and they you know what, I've tried two different sizes. This, this nine triple E is the best thing I've ever worn. They won't wear anything else. Yeah. And you know, it's just that's just how that goes because if they wear a nine triple E in ours, I mean, they're wearing a eleven and a half in a sneaker. You know what I'm saying? I mean, wow. That that's how that's how different that is. Or they're wearing, you know, a Goodyear welt in a 10, 10 D or ten and a half D in some other brand. Wow. You know, so you know, if you can find that size, um, meanwhile, our, our product will be an inch shorter. You know, yeah. but have the same width, and so it's just it's kind of like you know to to find that size and to make it work. You know, so we're we're going down that path. We have to be careful a little bit with the inventory because we're already now that we've reached you know that 100 plus style count, it gets a little tricky. You know, it gets it gets a little tricky. So I wanted to ask you a couple of questions about specific shoes in your in your lineup and kind of help us understand, it, especially from the side of people who like to be outside and and you know, go from the office and maybe walk the dog. I want to ask you what the best dog walking shoe is that you have, like to, to go for a walk with your dog. Um, but starting with, uh, you know, you have the brass 
the brass tan Essex and, and those, how would you describe that shoe? So the tan Essex is a softer leather from Horween that you kind of put it on and you feel like there'll be little to no break in just because it's more elastic um, and a little softer feel for health for how thick of a leather it actually is. The brass boots, the, the one thing especially concerning fit is the toe box is a little taller. And in the instance, which we do have that a customer says, look, I've got 15 pair of different products and boots and shoes. One, one problem I have is I feel pressure on the top of my foot, top of my toes. I just feel like I never have enough room, not so much width. I just, there's never enough toe box room. This is what that last is for on the brass boot. It has higher walls. So someone who says, I like to take walks with thicker wool socks, but it's so crowded, you know, in the toe box. I I just hate that feeling. This is what that's for. Um, I mean, think of your classic Red Wing mock boot. I mean, that this is what that is, having that extra toe depth and offering that kind of in fit. And when it comes to actually taking a walk in these shoes, this is a little bit of of a tougher conversation because it's a little divisive. Um, in the sense of the marketing behind, it's kind of like how milk, the marketing behind milk in like the early nineties or whatever, just kind of, it, it turned into, this is how you should have your morning, you know, with your cereal <laughs> and your milk. And it's healthy to have your glass of milk in the morning. Like, right. and then people now are like, why is that? You know, yeah. what happened? You know? And it's like, well, it's, it's marketing and it happens. And in footwear, it's soft and squishy and light. That is what marketing has been telling us is comfortable. Right. And whether that's comfortable or cool in the summer. If you sit down and talk to a bespoke bootmaker or you talk to someone who makes boots for someone who's on their feet, you know, 12 hours a day on a ranch, they're not wearing, you know, a knit knitted sneaker. And there's a reason behind that and the reason that the Goodyear welt the entire idea behind of having a heel versus, you know, this flat sole where right. your, your heel is, is level with the ball of your foot. It's to provide support. It's simply what these heels are for and the shank. And it's to provide relief for your Achilles and allow that foot to, to be in somewhat of a resting position. Okay. So for people who accidentally end up in New York City and buying their first pair of $700 Goodyear Welt shoes and they get the right size, they're so surprised that I would rather walk in the city all day in this Goodyear Welt leather sole shoe than anything else in my closet, hands down. I mean, there's no running walking shoes that I would rather wear than this because I have support. And when I'm, I'm wearing the shoe, it, it just offers this different feeling, whether it's in the arch, whether it's the footbed because of leather insole, all these different things provide that wearability over a long day. Hmm. Um, that spongy feeling of, of a sneaker, it simply can't do that. It can, it can take away the striking force. So some people that have bad knees or hips, that's kind of the one difference. But even back then for Goodyear Weld shoes, they would say, well, put a wedge on it, put a wedge sole on your shoe. So when you strike with your heel, it doesn't, you know, uh, hurt your knee or your hip and and so on. It has a softer strike, but when it comes to weight of the shoe and like the stretchiness, especially, you know, if you're, if you're 150 pound person, a 250 pound person, and you're walking a, a sneaker, that's very soft outsole, uh, these, these components that are foam and this and that, and the insoles are foam and they're all man-made materials. We know how that goes. I mean, they just collapse, right? Over time, yeah. they just collapse and there's no true support there. That's, I think, the total opposite of the spectrum 
would be a well-made cowboy boot. Mm-hmm. Have that on fitting properly. I mean, you could be out and about for 12, 14 hours a day. If you have the right size and the last works for you, it's a general consensus, especially of, of last makers and pattern makers. There's nothing better. There, there can literally be nothing better because of the support that it provides over, over the wear in the day's time, just allowing that foot to be in that rested position and provide arch support and, and so on. And so I, I think in a long-winded answer to what can I wear, you know, to, to walk the dog, me personally, I mean, I take our penny loafer that last, which was made specifically to have a little more room in the toe box, not, not ample room, but enough room that you don't feel pressure a little wider of a ball. Um, a medium instep, for example, that shoe, which most would look at and go, well, that's definitely not a walking shoe. I would rather have that, you know, when I go to New York City for three days, I just take one pair with me and I just wear them constantly and I don't have any problems. I would rather have that more than any, you know, sneaker, walking shoe, a running shoe any day. Wow. Um, so I, I, it's it's really comes down to the components and the last and whether it, it works for you or not. Right. Um, because if you have a leather insole that works for you and the last works for you, you have your personal orthotic in this shoe. It's only getting better over time, but the heel and the breast, which is like right in your arch of, of your foot, that part of the shoe, it doesn't collapse, right? It doesn't right. collapse because you've got the heel and you've got a shank in there. So it, it offers that support over a, a long day. I mean, a, another example is, you know, we had a friend, it was my dad's friend and he was working at a UPS counter and on his feet all day long. But it's, it's one of those jobs too, where you're not really moving. It's almost a worst case scenario. You're standing still for, for hours and hours throughout the day. You know, he got a pair of, he got him a pair of Alden indie boots and got his size, whatever that was, nine and a half, triple E, 10, triple E. And he, that guy, he wore those things for years and just ne- he wouldn't wear anything else because for the first time, because he was, he was wearing your typical new balance or whatever, throw them on and stand behind the counter all day, you know, just no support, no, no heel control. And it's just a, it's a very, very different feeling. And it's, it's almost hard to explain um, until you kind of put the shoe on, feel whether it's balanced for you or not, and kind of get used to that. Um, for example, me wearing shoes with heels or Goodyear Weld shoes day in, day out when I wear, you know, like a Vans new era shoe, you know, it, it feels very strange. You know, it's, it's a very different feeling. So the vice versa, you know, if, if you're wearing a Goodyear Weld for the first time, it might feel a little unnatural, but you know, if you give it a little time, I, I think, like I said, when, when someone kind of accidentally buys their way into a nice Goodyear Weld shoe without knowing, and then all of a sudden they're like, oh, these actually are very comfortable too. I didn't, I didn't realize that. It's a great walking shoe. Not a lot of people have that experience of, of picking out a Goodyear Weld shoe, having it fit right and go like, I'd rather wear this than, than anything else. Yeah. So you'd say that like, for example, like if you're walking the dog and, you know, in Minnesota, right, where the weather's crazy, the brass boot would be a good, a good choice, right? It's got a rugged sole. The brass boot. I mean, that is a work boot. Okay. farming boot hands down it's just that you know you use expensive leathers and the price points you know all of a sudden it's, it, it wouldn't come off like that anymore but that's exactly what it was i mean that's that's what a farmer's boot was yeah um you know when when my dad was selling uh boots like that in the midwest in the 80s 
that's who we sold it to was farmers. But then all of a sudden they start to realize, wow, these are comfortable. <laughs> this is, I would rather wear this all day outside on the farm or walking my dog than anything else. Um, so they just kind of like step right into it um, without knowing actually the, the upside uh, when it comes to fit and, and stability and things like that. So I think the brass boot, the diesel boot, I mean, all of these products, they're all very, very good uh, walking shoes. And, and you're, I know you're referencing a little bit like the cold weather and snow and everything else. The brass boot's good for that just because it's got like the lug, the lug sole on it. It's a little more aggressive. Um, but even the micro stud, the other rubber sole, you know, like on the diesel boot or the Edward, um, I mean, I'll wear those in the in the snow and, and stuff here in the, in the winter all, yeah. no problem. Right. You know? So a lot of that would then be sort of a... Um, style preference, right? The diesel versus the the brass, et cetera, are, are style. But all of those, what you're describing is have this Goodyear welt, have the heel, et cetera, and are built in a way that once you get the size correctly, you can just wear them all the time and walk in them forever, which is something that I think a lot of people who haven't had the experience of a really good shoe don't feel is possible, right? They look at that and say, hey, you know, because they've had experience with, with cheap boots, right, et cetera, that aren't comfortable, that don't may not fit well. And you think, well, I don't, I like to wear them because they kind of how they look, but they're not comfortable. But you could, you feel like, hey, that's the reason to buy something like this. Uh, 100%. And I, the one thing that really people get hung up on is sizing. And the one thing that I can really say that I, I feel that people really overthink it is they're looking for that perfect size. And the reality is there's no such thing because these aren't bespoke. And if you if you get a bespoke shoe, you're gonna have a problem there too. And that's just reality. And the reason is because your foot's a different size in August than it is December. Yeah, it's right. different <laughs> if it's a different size at 7 a.m. than it is at 8 p.m. Yeah. So, you know, that will always there is no such thing as a perfect size. It's finding something that feels good. There's no pressure. You don't have you know pressure on your instep or hot spots, and you break it in and let it become yours. Yeah. Um. You know, but to find that you know because we'll have someone say, well, the seven D was this, but the seven E was this. You know, and it's like we're, we're talking three millimeter variations. Um. It's like you you know a sock difference could be a bigger variation than that. Um. And and so a lot of times there's a little bit of too much. There's overthinking versus find something that you put it on and it feels comfortable. There's no pressure. It's not overly snug and wear it, wear it and wear it well. Um, and, and kind of sometimes we, we hear a little bit of buy, put something on, it should be snug and break it in. You know, we don't, we don't necessarily, um, you know, suggest that that's kind of something I think, um, you know, time will tell, but I, I don't, that, that's just not a good idea. You know, it's yeah. going to be uncomfortable. You know, you're going to stretch the components out, um, I mean, it's just, it's a terrible experience, actually. You know, you should be able to put it on and, and, and be kind of comfortable from the get-go. There's always a break-in period, but you shouldn't be stretching out the uppers, right. you know. Right. And you have a nice, um, I think it's the five errors in sizing or whatever it is on your journal, which I found really helpful because um, you just run through right, those yeah. things. So, all right, I've got two more quick things. One, Chelsea Boots. So the Chelsea you have, and especially the, the Chrome XL is beautiful. It looks amazing, right? Like I, I haven't had it on, but I think Chelsea boots are an interesting question because they, I think people sometimes wonder about 
getting a good fit, how they slip, right? Because they don't have the laces, et cetera. Like, how does that pair wear? How does it like fit um, on your last, et cetera? And, and what would be the sort of, um, I guess, pitch to to try one of those? Yeah, I mean, I, I think this one, um, I, I don't have a good sales pitch for it because it, it is a shoe just like a loafer that you you get the size that works for you heel to ball and that correct width you get that but it's true that that instep it needs to fit reasonably well as in it needs to be you know on top of your instep on the, on the top of your foot there it needs to be resting there so it holds and holds your heel that's what holds your heel from slipping is the instep whether it's a penny loafer or or a chelsea boot and that has to be the case. So for people who have a very, very low instep, they're going to have a hard time in a Chelsea or a penny loafer simply because they're going to have to size down a full size. And while the instep is going to be correct, the shoe is going to be too short and possibly too narrow, right? So depending, depending on the last, but that's, that's very, that's very common. So I think not only, you know, that that's the tough part is do you have a high instep, medium instep, low instep? So you have to size accordingly that way. But the second part is similar to a loafer, a nine to high shoe. There has to be some understanding that it's going to be a different fit. It's not. It, it, it's simply impossible for it to fit like a tie shoe. No different than a Western boot. It's going to be different, whether that's I feel a little bit here, or there's a little more heel slip, or there's going to be something. It's just, it it can't fit and feel the same as a tie sneaker or something like that. Right. So, and for some people, they love it. I love being on the pop of my Chelsea and Hey, I I even have a low instep, but there's a little heel slip. It doesn't bother me one bit. I never get hot spots. I wear them through the city every day. Um, Some people, they have the little heel slip. I can't wear this thing. Can't do it. And so, and, and it's a lot of its personal preference. It could be simply their foot shape doesn't work with a, a certain last. Um, but I've met plenty of people that regardless of the brand, they, they just can't wear Chelsea boots because they don't like that feeling. You know, they want to be able to cinch the, the, the boot down on their, on their foot. So um, there has to be kind of a combination of those things. And if you're not overthinking the sizing, in my experience, it's usually not too difficult to get a size that works for you and you break it in, the break-in's even more important with the Chelsea because the boot will begin to roll over time, reducing some heel slip. And you know, the heel, we have leather heel counters, the component in the back that that's actually the stiffer in the heel, that's going to start to shape, you know, to your foot and mold. And so those things can reduce a little bit and, and start to feel better, right? As in, it feels like your boot when you put it on. Um, but a lot of times if there's heel slip, people won't even let it get that far. They're like, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to pass on this, which yeah, that, that makes sense as well. I, I'm one of those people for the penny loafer, for example, I wear pretty much a size half up than most people would. I just like, I like a looser fit. I don't, I don't want it to be tight. And that's just kind of how I like that, where I know some people would be like, I, I can't do that. I needed a, a snug fit. So a lot of preference involved when it comes to the, the no lace patterns. Yeah. So, you know, again, not to drill too deep on this, but hearing you talk about where your foot 
fits, for example, in this Chelsea boot, right? And I think this is where you guys, and I know one can call you guys up and, and work through a size, right? To try to find the right size and grant stone for you. Um, you were saying you have to, for example, in a Chelsea boot, get your foot to fit and and break in the appropriate spot. So how would one know, for example... Do you, do you see what I mean? Like if yep. if I put my yep. foot in there, what what you were just describing, yeah. what does that so, mean in practice? So usually the best way to start the conversation, especially with a jealousy boot, is we honestly, we push a customer to send us an email because, you know, Giovanni, who, who you met at the, at the yeah, show, sure. I mean, he's answering emails all day long. This, and that's what we do all day. And it's like, send us an email what are you currently wearing? What are your current sizes? Do you own maybe one of our boots? If you do, great. If you don't, we, what else do you have? And, and, and let's get close to your size. And when someone actually gets gets their size in, which 85% of the time, it's it's half size down from their average shoe size. So right. if you wear a size 10 in Nike, Brooks, Vans, uh, Clarks, and so on, you wear nine and a half in ours, half okay. size large. Um you know, they, they fit half size large. And so when, when you get it, one of the simplest ways to tell is, is the whitest part of your foot in the whitest part of the boot or shoe. And if you simply look down, it's going to be the ball, right? The ball in the medial side of your foot to the ball on the, on the lateral side of your foot. Is that sitting in the whitest part of the boot, which is, it's quite visually clear looking at the, the shape of the, hmm. the boot. And if you put your foot in, especially with welts, it's even easier to tell is it stretching in certain areas, right? Because you'll be, the upper will be stretching over the side of the welt. Um, so you, you can get a very good idea whether the heel to ball is, is okay or not, right. you know, uh, or, because you can also say, well, I have like literally way too much room in, in the front of, of the shoe, or I feel like it's kind of short, you know, this, 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 you know, I feel like I only have like a quarter of an inch in front of my toes or something. Then you, yeah. that's another dead giveaway. Well, you're probably in something that's too short for you. Right. Um, which, you know, honestly that part of it and the grading of last, it's usually not the concern simply because while everyone's lasts are different, everyone's grading is a little different. It's pretty straightforward. Hey, I wear 10 and everything well, here's a nine and a half, you're not going to be far off, right? So that part usually heel to ball isn't that difficult because also a lot of last makers, I mean, they're making last for hundreds and hundreds of brands. And so the general idea of the the length from heel to ball, it's usually not too complicated. The the part that gets that we focus on a little more is do you have hot spots? Do you have pressure? on the width, you know, the ball of your foot, do you feel like the shoe is too narrow? The instep, those are pretty much the two big ones. You know, the, 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 the width for the ball of your foot and your instep, is it loose or is it tight? You know, um, or no, it, 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 I don't feel any discomfort at all. Then, you know, you've got it. Yeah. Yeah. And it seems like the real value proposition that you offer is you've got these shoes that are incredible, materials and make and you find a way to fit the foot and get a customer in the right size shoe and then 
that those both have to be the case to really have a quality experience and then they're non-disposable, right? Which is something you've described, but I think it's also really important in footwear that you can wear these things for a really long time if you get those two things right. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think one thing that brands used to focus on and that I, we don't anymore because it's the world we live in as far as people can wear whatever they want and, there's not a lot of social pressure anymore for the good or bad to dress a certain way, you know, unless you're, unless you're in law or banking or some type of finance in some way, you know, the, the kind of restrictions of what you need to be wearing to to work and things, of course, is, is very, very loose now. So that that's only the only other really component that in the past, okay, these brands that, that were around 40, 50 years ago that were good or well, I mean, it was one of the main things they would talk about is this is, this finishes your, your look. I mean, this, this is, you know, coming to confidence when you, when it's a polished look at work, uh, whether you're just out and about whatever it's, it's, it kind of finishes the package, you know, um, where we don't really get into that anymore because I said, it's, yeah, things are a little bit, uh, more casual now. And so uh, it still does that, you know, it still does that when you wear a t-shirt and jeans and you have a a really nice pair of boots on or, or loafers, Um, it it still does look nice. But I mean, as we all know now, that's, it's just personal preference, right? Right. Right. So, but it can make a big difference. Um, Right. No question in comfort and, and look, it's, it's a very nice way to, to up the, up the game. So, all right, last question. So you've got the bison coming out um, and, are there other things on the horizon too? Like what's, what's new and what, what are we, what should we be looking forward to? Yeah, I think we've got the, uh, the field boot is going to be coming out in just about two months. So this fall um, we have a new boot and it'll be in multiple leathers like Kudu and Chrome XL and um, the waxed suede. Um, it's a taller boot. And it's a, it's a little busier as far as the stitching. It has a bigger mock stitch on it. So it's a, you know, the toe has a mock stitch. And it, it almost looks like one of those old hunting boots. Oh, okay, wow. It's not quite that tall. It's not quite that tall. But it looks like more of a vintage hiking slash uh, hunting boot. Huh. And so, yeah, it's, it's a little bit different. It's that pattern we've actually you know, we've had for a long time, we've made samples in it forever. And it's just, it's a little, it's a little unique, you know, it doesn't, it's not exactly what um, I I should say. It doesn't really look like a lot of the things we currently have on the site. You know, it's, it's it stems out a little bit into a different um, category for us, but in the same materials, you know, the same, uh, same insoles and shanks and all that stuff and lining, it's just a little bit of a different pattern, a little taller, um, unlined quarters, you know, the, the shaft itself. So it's a little softer towards the top where you lace and, and cinch the, the lacing at the top. So yeah, it's just a little bit of a different, uh, a boot for us. So that'll be a fun one, uh, because we're going to have, like I said, in a lot of leathers, including like the bison and, and everything. So, um, that's kind of the next big one for us. Wow. Fantastic. 
Well, there's yeah. so much there's so much to check out on the site and so much to learn about Grant Stone that you have there. I really encourage people to do that and um, and to try it out. So, Wyatt, I really appreciate you spending so much time with us today on the Dog Watch, and um, good luck with this new field boot, and we'll be watching for all the new things that come out. So thanks again for joining us on the Dog Watch. Well, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Wyatt for joining us today and sharing so much about the art of making and wearing shoes and boots. Also, stop by the Grant Stone website for the new field boot. It has just been released and is in walnut bison, saddle tan, earth, and even burgundy kudu. So, congratulations, Wyatt, on this new field boot. I'm sure it's going to be successful, and we really appreciate you joining us today. Our music today is Whiskey on the Mississippi by Kevin McLeod, courtesy of Creative Commons. Until our next shift, this is Michael Canfield thanking you for joining us on the Dog Watch. Yeah.